Hi, uh, welcome. Today you're here at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. I have Professor John Baller from the from Melbourne with me, who has a great deal of expertise in diagnostic reasoning and has done a number of research studies with us over the last five years. Welcome, John. Thank you. Now, what we're going to talk about today is we're going to set out and look at some of the evidence over the last 30 or 40 years relating to diagnostic reasoning. We are post later some of the interesting papers we've looked at. We've looked at a paper by Arthur Elstein, Thinking About Diagnostic Thinking, a 30-year perspective. We've got a paper here, Researching Clinical Reasoning by Jeffrey Norman. And another paper about educational strategies to promote clinical diagnostic reasoning by Judith Bowen. And what we'll do then is finish up with some of our own thinking around reasoning, but I thought first we'll just go over to John and, I, and I'm going to pose some issues about the issues of diagnostic reasoning. So um, the first paper that was this paper by Arthur Elstein, who did work in hypothetical deductive model in some 30, 40 years ago, which you're well aware of. In, and he used this sort of system, which maybe you could just describe, which is this think aloud type of work in his, in his research. Fine. As you know, Arthur Elstein and his colleagues uh, were the first group to do this uh, systematically, looking at how doctors think. And uh, they left an inheritance uh, which uh, is hard to beat in that it's still the most important uh, contribution of how something would start. And what they did, they collected about 30 or so physicians, physicians being a mixture of general practitioners uh, and generally not uh, specialists. Yeah. They gave them a, and they asked people to participate who were highly regarded in the group. Yeah. So they were thought to be experts. And they gave them uh, standardised cases like multiple sclerosis and similar at times fairly complex cases. Mm -hmm. uh, something that a general practitioner, which they call a physician, would not see very often. Okay. And they asked them to go through thinking aloud what they were, what was going through their mind at the time uh, when uh, they asked questions and the patient was giving uh, reports to them. Uh, and what they found was that within a matter of seconds or minutes, all of these uh, doctors had three to five what they called hypotheses in mind. Can I bring you up on that? Just, just I mean, reading his 209 report, when I, I see that five, I mean, the first thing that jumped out to me within his major findings were... Experts and non-experts physicians could not be distinguished. And that actually is probably their most important finding, in that uh, it's hard to believe a situation which, which uh, reflects reality, that there's no difference between an expert and a non-expert. So clearly there was uh, a big question mark about some of the things they were finding in relationship to the method because uh, at first people used to think that there's a generalised a, a, a generalised 
method for clinical reasoning, but there must be more to it. And there's another finding which I sort of preempt uh, that uh, the same expert, given different cases, some of them would be good at it, and other other cases they were not good at it, showing that there was no generalizability, and there was more to it than just thinking about trying to solve the problem. So if I come back, so a way of doing this was to provide artificial cases. That's right. But the problem with that approach is, is the artificial bit of the case doesn't necessarily reflect real-world practice. And that presents a problem then in this artificial nature. Either it may be too easy or too hard, and there's no way of distinguishing expert from non-expert. Well, I agree that that's uh, very important in that uh, the fact that it was standardised case and not a real case takes it away from reality. Because one, one thing we do know these days, and became known fairly quickly, that a great deal of uh, thinking and behaviour is dependent on the environment in the context of the case. So a expertise is content or case specific. So in some areas you may be an expert, particularly in certain areas, but not in all areas. That's right. And the other thing that was interesting about these findings, which are, is that this idea which has long pervaded the literature is hypothetico deductive method of reasoning. You just just if you could just briefly explain what that entails. Well, that, that entails that you recognise something in the patient, yeah, and from that you deduce that that patient may have a number of other things which make him to have a certain disease. But we know that this is unlikely to be the case in these cases in the patients they saw, because it's hard to imagine that you develop a hypothesis in a matter of seconds. It must be a different way of doing it. Okay. So what they thought were hypotheses developed by deduction is probably something else, and that will be another story later on. So interestingly, so I think there are a couple of interesting things. Although think aloud is a useful technique, in artificial cases it may be somewhat too lacking in content or case-specific to be actually elicit true expertise. And then the second thing is to say, in summary, is that potentially the hypothetico-deductive model that's pervaded for some 30, 40 years is actually in the real world. It's not how we operate because you just can't generate enough hypotheses and test them. And it would probably take a really long time if that's how you did practice. Well, we use it sometime in more complex cases. Okay. Uh, and I think uh, it's interesting that even today, people talk about hypothetical deductive being a norm, norm, and it isn't. So interestingly, and then the second thing is what Alfred's done here, Alstine, is look at the analysis of case reports. And, and, and that's an interesting, but one of the cases here says he explicitly recalls Osler, who in the era before the clinical laboratory had developed they urge physicians to listen to their patients. They are telling you the diagnosis, which is often what we hear. But is that really helpful, that type of reflection or, or issue around expert, developing expertise? 
Well, I think that has a point in that patients often know uh, more than we think. And I think it's worthwhile listening to the patient, but then you have to check, with, check it by yourself. Okay. Now, one of, the, one of the issues here, which I found an issue with one of the, with some of the cases, was makes two points relevant to our understanding of diagnose, diagnostic reasoning. The role of prior clinical experience, now in the service of rapid pattern recognition, and what that goes on into identify this rapid, poorly verbalized, highly overlearned process as intuition, or as others prefer it, as pattern recognition. And so within his aspect is that this doesn't clearly fit the hypothetical deductive. There's this issue about your prior clinical experience in relation to patterns and what people call intuition. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing to think about. Because, again, people still think about pattern recognition which implies that you have looked at a large number of aspects of the case. Yep. But uh, the original so-called hypothesis is usually just dependent on a sim single look or a single symptom from a patient. Okay. And uh, I think uh, that is one of the major things to re recognize, that it is not a pattern that makes you feel about something in the first place, but it's more likely to be a salient feature of a case which you recognise. Now, in relationship to experience, inexperienced people with uh, medicine still make hypotheses because patients often have hypotheses. And medical students, if you see a patient limping, might say this patient may have had a stroke because their grandmother's friend had a stroke and she was limping. So they all have background experiences uh, but it's a difference of experience from what the expert had. Okay, so that's interesting. So salient features in the role of experience, but you can have experiences outside of just being trained to be a doctor because they may already be there in the in the background. Absolutely. Okay. Now I'm I, I'm just going to pick out one last point from this paper. It's a very nice sort of concise look at some of the work of the last thirty years and. Just coming at the end, it sort of says, we now, we now know that experienced physicians can and do use all kinds of methods. So there's more than one method, in effect. In current cognitive theory, rapid nonverbal intuitive cognition is characterised as System 1 and System 2. We'll come back to that later, if you don't mind, because that's yeah. been important in some of our, our work. But... It's interesting here, and maybe we should touch this, about how do clinicians decide which approach is best suited for the case at hand? And it, it leaves a question mark there. That, that's a question mark. Yeah. Even today. Is it still silly? But, but I believe that some of the work on the dual theory, we're going to talk, talk about that okay. one, does shed some light in a few Okay, so that's some of the else in some nice points there that we may touch on later. Then, then in the middle here, there's a paper by Judith Bowen in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is educational strategies to promote clinical diagnostic reasoning, which is a sort of aimed at teachers. This paper, it's a sort of review, look at a few cases and so forth. And what what she does there is is, is Talk about the expert resident brought two sets of skills to the encounter with the patient. Looking at a 
case about gout, I think it was, and looking at how an expert versus a non-expert, a bit like a registrar or consultant versus a sort of medical student. The resident probably formed an early impression, a mental abstraction of the patient's story. And then the second thing is, the expert's resident's clinical case presentation was a succinct summary of the findings, providing the teacher with a clinical picture of the patient as seen through the resident's eye. That was sort of what she was trying to say with some aspect of expert. How does that help us in any way? Does, or well, it helps in the sense that uh, after it was shown that the type of uh, thinking from the original studies was not giving us any answer, people started thinking about what sort of uh, knowledge is necessary to make uh, diagnostic decisions and uh, what sort of schemas in the brain uh, are stored in the brain to help you with this work. And so the basis of what she's talking about is that when you have seen a few patients in gout in this particular case, you have seen multiple aspects of gout and can differentiate it from something else like osteoarthritis. And you do this because you have a picture in your mind, a complex uh, of knowledge that you have built up from seeing a number of cases. In contrast, the first year medical student or the first year intern, when she sees a patient with gout, it's on his list. So we, we know from previous studies that uh, a novice tends to diagnose on lists, often not giving priorities because he doesn't know enough, enough about it. In contrast to the person who has got a complex knowledge about it, knows what's for against it, what's against it, and what do you do next to make it better, to make a better diagnosis. Often these are referred to as uh, illness, illness uh, uh, script. Yeah, well, we'll come to that later with Jeffrey Norman, maybe, okay. the illness script. Well, so, so her position is, this position is, provides a sort of simple model which looks very appealing but seems what we've just heard previously and from Elstein where the conclusion a bit too simplistic but talks about the first step is based on knowledge experience and other important contextual factors such as you're in the emergency department, you're on a surgery ward, what time of day it is, what's the patient look like. The second step is this data acquisition depending on the setting, elements of the history findings on physical exam and results of tests. And then another early step is the creation of a mental abstraction or problem representation, usually a one-sentence summary defining the specific case in abstract terms. Patient has pain, oily in the morning, it's worse on exercise, clearly this is osteoarthritis. Interesting though, she goes on to this, clinicians may have no conscious awareness of this cognitive step the problem representation. That's an interest in this no conscious awareness and in, in this divide. And how do you see what? Where does that come into the reasoning process? And if, if you're not aware of it, how can you improve it or even understand what you're doing? Well, the description is appropriate and accurate up to a point, but uh, it depends on how much introspection the doctor will exercise and how much uh, you'll think about it or just accept it coming out of the blue, assuming it, it, it will be fine. 
uh, it's uh, not really uh, it's, it's by no means unusual to diagnose this way and one of the questions we have which we still haven't answered completely as we said before is how to change from acceptance to let's stop here and wait and look at it in more detail and I think uh, you want to talk a bit later about this Yeah. Uh, but I believe that what this paper is about is how to improve the knowledge in relationship to a particular disease. But it's not really clinical reasoning, it's disease recognition and disease oriented as opposed to cognition oriented. So that's interesting, but she does go, go back and just relate a bit to this many methods. She talks about this both non-analytical and analytical yeah. reasoning strategies are effective and are used simultaneously in inter interactive fashion so they must be going yeah. at the same time non-analytical reasoning as exemplified by pattern recognition this is the second time we've seen it come up is essential to diagnostic expertise well non-analytical non reasoning is a to me a problem because non-analytical non things happen in your brain yes but it's not to be my mind a reasoning process where you reflect on something okay it's something that you've built up over time in many cases over years if you're an expert and the interesting thing about it is it changes all the time a great deal which i think we'll need to come back to later on so it's does that mean so from a non-analytical perspective the major way to improve your non-analytic is through experience, and that's how we sometimes define expertise in terms of experience. Sometimes. However, then she talks about deliberative analytical reasoning is yeah. the primary strategy when a case is complex or ill-defined. And boy, do you see a lot of them when you're not quite sure what's going on. The clinical findings are unusual or the physician has had little clinical experience with the particular disease entity. Yeah, yeah. Now there must be then a way of reasoning or working out what's going on that's different that's, and that's maybe is that where the skill which is not related to expertise starts to come in in some way. It is, it is a skill but it's not just a, it's not a skill it's a, it's a way of uh, operating as it were. Some people are more likely to be want to learn in what we call a deep, a deep way. In other words, explore what you're seeing and relating it to the <coughs> previous ex existing knowledge that you have. And I think that, that to me is an issue here. What sort of learner you are, what sort of physician you are going to be, which will determine what, what sort of expert you will end up being. Okay, and that's interesting. She does finish up with learners with strong diagnostic reasoning skills often use multiple abstract qualifiers to discuss the discriminating features of a clinical case, yeah. comparing and contrasting appropriate diagnostic hypotheses and linking each hypothesis to the findings in the case. So they're using different things. They may say, well, here's the pattern. This is what I think this may be. But actually, when I think about this test result, it might make it think this, and this rules it out. So they're using different techniques all at once. Except the, that I believe they don't use patterns. Okay. They use critical cues that they think are important. And that was one of the early findings in the first phase of uh, the, this, uh, this uh, uh, 
studied that uh, patient, good doctors do not collect more data than bad doctors and, and there's no real correlation between how much data you collect and the rightness or wrongness of your diagnosis. Okay, interesting. We'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. Interestingly, uh, interestingly as well, in some of the letters that you look in responses, there's some criticism in here. And one of the letters said, Bowen's review of educational strategies can be, that can be used to promote diagnostic reasoning does not sufficiently emphasise the concept of premature closure. Mm-hmm. In, and, in, and I thought that was interesting as well, pulling that out. And I'll come back to that when we come to our, some of the, the work you've done over the last five years. But let's just, before we get there, let's just, Jeffrey Norman here did a paper here in 2005, which is the Research in Clinical Reasoning, Past History and Current Trends. I think it's interesting to know of the, the sort of million papers that are published in PubMed every year. There actually isn't much research in this area, is there? There's okay. only a couple of hundred papers out there, really. And the other problem is it's published all over the place. Yeah. So it's published from psychology to medicine to surgery to uh, education and so on and so on. And many of the big journals, I mean, it's quite nice to see the New England Journal in Medicine, this is 2006, actually don't really publish much about teaching or reflecting or reasoning around diagnostics, do they? That's right. Which seems to me a, 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 a sort of paradox because this is an important concept of medicine. If you get the diagnosis right, we can go from there. If you get it wrong, we're in deep trouble, yet nobody wants to emphasise. They're more likely to publish a result about a test, single test property yeah. than to think about how doctors may learn better. That's the difference between disease orientation and concept orientation. So let's just find out. I mean, there was a number of themes that actually Norman I quite like, and maybe I'll take each one and then you could just talk to them. The first was, there is little evidence that reasoning can be characterised in terms of a general process variables. Mm. Just for the I people mean, listening there, what, would the, what does that mean, general process variables? What, what it means is when we started with all this, the idea was that we'll, we've got a system of reasoning and we can teach it to every student for every type of case. But even the early studies have shown that this, this is not the way it works. Doctors do it in a very different way, and every doctor will have a different way of doing it himself or herself. Okay, that's interesting. And that's what you got. It's evidence that expertise is associated not with a single basic reputation, but with multiple coordinated representations in memory from causal mechanisms to prior examples. And that's what he's trying to get at. There's more than one. Okay, different representations may be utilised in different circumstances. But he goes on, this is again, and Elstein says it, but little is known about the characteristics of a particular situation that led to a change in strategy. So this is a bit like when uh, we don't quite know which ones are presented why and why you change the way you do. Yeah. Again, I have to go, go back to the beginning and say that... Uh, we don't know very little about this. There are some studies recently which suggest uh, a few ideas, but uh, we can really divide what's in our concepts in the brain into three different categories, again mentioned by, uh, by 
Norman, do you want me to talk about them? No, maybe we'll come to that in a, in a minute. We'll come... The, the, we, he sort of does a nice little narrative through through the sort of seventies, eighties, and nineties of yeah, our thinking. Yeah. He, he preceded Elstein's work and talked about the hypothetical deductive work. Interestingly, talks a little bit in the eighties about the issues about chess and the growing literature on expertise in other d- domains, particularly chess, was quite influential in the eighties. An interesting note here, the single best measure of expertise in chess was recall of a typical mid-game position, where after a five-second exposure, experts will typically recall the exact position of about 80% of the pieces. It is basically showing the expertise is based on underlying relation between memory, performance and expertise, and that characterised a lot of the thinking around that time. That's right. Interesting, a chess master has remembered about 50,000 game positions to get there. However, what he does say, in medicine there is little gain from gathering and remembering extensive amounts of patient data, which I think you've already mentioned. Consequently, thoroughness is a poor index of expertise. That's right. So this is where you see some clinicians are there for 10, 15 minutes with the patients, and others are there 60 seconds, 90 seconds. And this concept of some people will write a whole ream of history and other people write two lines and say there's a diagnosis. And in some ways the expertise are the ones who cut through. Would you agree more quicker to get into what's the nub of the issues in the case? Uh, not quite. Okay. Uh, ex- you can ex- disagree ex- me if you want, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's been shown that experts with original, the first thing they thought, think of is more likely to be right than someone who's not an expert, so that's true. On the other hand, just how much data you collect uh, can, it depends very much on the person's in, in inclination. Some experts just spend a lot of time and some experts do not. Up to a point it's also risk-taking, because obviously if you make a diagnosis within a matter of seconds, you quite at risk to the outside world and also to yourself because you, need, you didn't have time to check on your thinking. In other words, you did not go on to system two that we come to later okay. to check on your system one. But in a matter of choosing the place that where you can, you don't have to do this is the issue that we're talking about. Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to come back to that, but just I, there's a bit in this Norman paper that really interested me, which was research during the 1990s, focused on forms of mental representations, going back to the old pattern recognition and experience, and can be divided roughly into broad categories, and there was a chap called Schmidt who did a lot of the work, and and it comes into basic science or causal knowledge, schema, scripts, and other representations of the relation between signs and symptoms and diagnosis and exemplars based on experience with past cases. So the example here is that by teaching basic science you create the ability to have these abilities to dip into these exemplars and go back and but interestingly here there's a very pertinent quote which i'm just going to read out given the amount of educational time devoted to learning basic sciences it is reasonable to assume that expert clinicians exemplify the application of scientific concepts to clinical problems yet Primarily, that expert clinicians make little use of biomedical science in daily reasoning. 
Now there's a conflict there in terms of what we teach and what you use in practice. I think uh, the answer to that is that the basic science knowledge uh, is sometimes used, sometimes isn't used. And it depends up to a point on the specialty, up to a point on the patient that you're dealing with. Uh, there's a concept which they, where people talk about encapsulated knowledge. Okay. In other words, knowledge that sort of sticks to the script, for instance, of Schmidt, is the knowledge that you know, picked up somewhere else that you stick onto it. And how much of that is, okay, is taking place will be very much dependent on the types of cases you are seeing. And uh, so when you say you do not use basic science knowledge, that is not entirely true because you, can't, because you can show that some of it is important to you and some of it is not. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at a student or a, or a young doctor seeing a patient for the first time, they use a great deal of basic science, yeah. but that's how they work things out. Whilst the expert doesn't have to go back to it, because it's all there somewhere, uh, I, should, I shouldn't say all, but some of it is there somewhere. Because certainly learning how many uh, bones you've got in your wrist, wrist and when they ossify, is not going to help you. So interesting. Of course, there's a, there's, I'm, I'm going to move forward now because into, and we've got a paper here, identifying early warning signs for diagnostic errors in primary care. And this is John Baller and actually myself here and Claire Goyder and Matthew Thompson in BMJ Open. This is actually a paper that looked at 25 experienced general practitioners. But this is built on a, a, a couple of papers that, that basically try to bring a model together that says part of this reasoning process, and we, we heard it earlier right at the beginning from Arthur Elstein, was around the System 1-2, System 2 reasoning. Do you want to just explain what that is a little bit, and then we'll look at how that applies to the, the process of diagnosis. Arthur Elstein said in this uh, another paper that we were referring to that uh, one of the biggest problems we have is uh, how to make you go into system two if you need to and what, what makes it you need to as opposed to you don't need to. So let me just step back. So system one reason is your fast intuitive reasoning. And system two is your sort of deliberal analytical reasoning. That's right. I mean, uh, in some of the books, like by Tayerski, and they sort of say a system one reasoning. So if I say to you two plus two, immediately comes to your mind, and people listening, well, you can't stop but go four, can you, in your mind? Yeah. But if I go 35 times 23, then you've got to go into a deliberate analytical mode to try and work that out. You can still work that out, but you have to think about it. And that's what's going on here. After a point of sight, yeah. So how does that then apply to the diagnostic process? How do clinicians work in relation to this fast and slow thinking? They, they use uh, mental pictures, mental, what's in your knowledge base. And they have different names for it. The name I like best is... Uh, personal knowledge okay and uh, personal knowledge is based on a number of things 
the basic science, in other words, what's referred to quite often uh, as the theory of the profession. This is how Schoen talks about it. It's what you were talking about before. Yes, yeah, yeah. science, And there's some of it there. The second thing that's there is the disease-oriented uh, uh, schemas that uh, you were talking about with Schmidt. And uh, then there are a number of other things like heuristics. Again, we talked about it. Heuristic being uh, sort of uh, rules of thumb, for instance, about if, if you do this, you do that. But there are a couple of other things, and one of them which are very important, and probably the most important is exemplars. Things you've seen before, and you've got a large number of these, and then you stitch it onto your present knowledge. It becomes your personal knowledge. And one of the problems we have is we all have different ways of approaching this because we are different people. So some of them are more likely to want to incorporate it, and others do not take so much interest in it. And so what I'm, what I'm talking about is that there is this personal knowledge that we have which depends on the person himself or herself, as well as the experience and as well as the okay. theory. And there's another thing that is very important to recognise is the environment that you're doing your work in which is you were referring to before, that the original cases were not real cases. Yeah. Now we are in the real world. Yeah. And one of the most important decisions to make about will I spend in time in S2 or not is coming from the outside world. And you have to think of it as, for instance, a typical example is Friday afternoon, everything is closing, I better get an X-ray today as opposed to tomorrow, because the gigs may will be closed tomorrow. Okay, yeah. Um, now, now, just, but when, so, in, in, in the context is important, but we also had this bit earlier which you mentioned, and which comes up a bit, this idea that in this process, that it's not so much pattern recognition, but it's critical cues. That's right. And what's the difference between, do you see as the difference between pattern recognition and critical cues? A pattern recognition to me brings up a picture where if you have a patient with uh, a cough, you have to ask questions about uh, uh, how long you've had it and, and so on, you eat their cough around the, the district and so on and so on. But uh, an experienced doctor will just ask one or two questions about the most complex case. If you come along to me and you say, I had a headache which was like uh, a thunderclap, yep. you don't ask any more questions. Yep. You more or less know. So it's a single, what we call red herring quite often. Okay. It tells you what's, what's happening. And one of our, our, our suggestions will be that there are certain red herrings, that's <laughs> the opposite, red flags, in other words, something telling you that there's something to look up, to, to be worried about, so let's think a bit harder about this. Okay. But the environment, if you know that you're in a rush, that you're running right and getting anxious about it, that's the time to make sure that you think about it. Another one, let's stop and, and go back again. Another one might be, and that, that is why this work is important, that we attach specific diagnostic, not diagnostic clues, but clues 
critical views and red, flag, red uh, red flags and special steps of the diagnostic process. And if you look at the beginning, the initiation phase, yeah. we keep talking about salient feature. Maybe I'll just come into this salient feature and this initiation while you're talking then. Because this paper says initiation closure of the cognitive process, that's at the beginning and yeah. the end, are the most exposed to risk of error. Cognitive biases developed early in the process lead to errors at the end. And so somehow you either are at the beginning of a diagnostic process, and this is where there's work about heuristics, you anchor in, you think it's this too early, in the, or at the end closure because you may be rushing or you're, quick, you're not quite sure, and you say, well, the patient's well, and actually you should have carried on correcting some information. How does that help the clinician then think about improving their performance? Well, if you, you have used a, a certain salient feature for a long time yeah. and base your diagnosis on it, which we tend to do, then from time to time you should take time off, take time out, and look it up on the EBM literature. So what we're saying is, because we know there are no... I mean, I've seen that some people develop rule-based where That's they're right. clearly wrong. I mean, I've seen one, you can't have pulmonary embolism unless you've got a cough and hemoptysis that somebody's articulated mm. to me, and that's clearly wrong. There are many of these heuristics. So, look, I, we're going to finish up now. I just want, what do you think are the take-home message, messages? I think for two types of people. One is for the clinician out there who's trying to improve his reasoning and diagnostics, and second, for those that try to teach this type of work to medical students, these issues. Well, the best thing to do would be to work in an environment which supports this. In that, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of writing about this, and we know a lot about this. That people behave differently in different environments, and if you work in a supportive environment where you can talk with colleagues and, re and review your activities with uh, discussing cases, and then looking up as to what should be happening and work with a facilitator, that would be the number one in my opinion. Okay, okay. Okay, well look, I'm going to let uh, conclusions from Arthur Elstein finish up this conversation. I thought this was a nice finish actually. It, diagnostic errors can never be entirely eliminated. Human reasoning is not perfect, and so mistakes in interpretation and inference will be made. Sooner or later, situations will be encountered where one's knowledge will be incomplete. Feedback in this clinical second setting is spotty. Second, even if our knowledge were complete and our inference process was perfect, clinical evidence is not. Thank you very much, John Baller, here today at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.